Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. We never know where life will lead us or what may hinder us along the way. But while every day can feel like one big question mark, it doesn't have to. With the right insights, strategies, and solutions from Western and Southern Financial Group, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco. And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson. We're live on YouTube. Appreciate everybody that tunes in here. And we're here in podcast world. Appreciate all of you as well. Having some great, a great time here during draft season, Sam. <laughs> great time, Steve. Isn't great it? time. We're yeah. just all excited. I loved our show on Monday. We just rolled in, did a mock draft, teamed up, and uh, picked for every team. So go check that out if you haven't already. Um, today, you wanted to talk crazy NFL draft theories. Yeah, I think there's some fun stuff happening right now. We get to wade through what's smoke, what's real, what any of this means, and just the general madness of it all. All right, so we'll go through all of that. Uh, first, I, you, you love when I tell you stories about me being like a bull in a china shop. Yeah. That was an actual PFF award a couple years ago that I won. Yes, you are the presumably incumbent holder of the award and probably will be forevermore so the thing about being as as big as you are is that you don't necessarily have a great control over your own limbs that's just it's inherent right well first off i was going to tell i actually was going to text you the other day the number of times i'm carrying one of my kids and think about how many times (laughs) i slam into the wall yeah but the number of times they're like bumping into the wall and it's like sorry sorry about your head cracking yeah yeah, walking along and just like so that happens child head into a doorway Today, I was rushing out of the house, and my goal, I do this radio hit in Mississippi once a week, and I try to do it on my drive in here for the okay. podcast, so I try to set it up. It started a little bit late, or I, st- I was a little bit late, so I'm on the radio, and 
you know those nice uh, Simply Safe alarm systems that we I got with, with the key fob? I do. The key fob has a one button push to turn your alarm on. Yeah. So I got my keys in my pocket. I'm scrambling to get my stuff live on radio. And then I set the alarm off, which I didn't even know was on because apparently <laughs> I turned it on in my pocket, right? Yeah. So the alarm goes off. I go put the code in and I leave the house. So apparently the alarm company was calling me while I was live on radio. So by the time I got here, I finished the radio hit. My wife calls me. She's like, the police were just here. <laughs> nice. You, you set off the panic button. Yeah. So apparently not only did I put on the alarm, I put on the panic button somehow. And the police came by to make sure everything was okay. Because I did receive a call while I was live on radio yeah, and I didn't answer it. Can't take it. Can't take that. Right. So I couldn't tell the company that everything was okay. Yeah, I think the key fob itself like acts as a panic button. I think there's a button on it that's the equivalent of the panic button that you can get. Um, yeah, impressive. So that was uh, that was my morning. Sorry, honey. Nice. And he was. She was like, "Oh, I introduced the kids. They were very nice, yeah. but uh, probably didn't need to happen." I uh, one year when I was uh, just come back from it was like a summer vacation at college or something. So I was in my parents' house. And uh, I got a phone call one day, and it's an alarm company. And they're like, hey, we're, uh, you know, whatever, Dave from ACT here. Um, next door's alarm is going off. I'm like, all right. And? <laughs> it's not my house. What do you expect me? He was like, well, can you just, uh, like, go around and have a look? I was like, no. I mean, what? I was like, not really. I don't have access to their house. I can, like, look in the window from the front, but that's about it. Like. Beyond that, I'm not sure what. Apparently, Nextdoor had put us on like their list of, you know, the call in case of alarm being tripped. Really? But hadn't told us, right? So we were unaware of this. So I've just got this guy on the phone telling me to like investigate a potential break in next door with no way of accessing the house. So I'm like standing, looking over our fence into their windows. I'm like, I mean, I don't see a guy there. I, so that was a weird conversation. What if somebody was there? Why would you be the one going over there? Well, because, you know, you designate somebody as like the, just like a, like a, a, a person to call to check it out and That's be like. police are for, Sam. I mean, it is, but I think there's a, a step between where you're like, can you just check that the alarm hasn't tripped for no good reason or something or whatever. Anyway. Either way, if you're going to do that, you should probably tell the person that's on the list so that they don't spend 20 minutes just looking into a house's <laughs> windows. Anyway, let's get into this thing here. That's fun. Uh, NFL draft theories. What would you want to start with here? And what was your thought behind uh, the crazy theories? Well, we've just – the Mac Jones thing is interesting. We're – you know, the 49ers trade up to number three, and there's a lot of reporting going around that Mac Jones is the guy, and then – now there's a backlash of people saying, of course, that's ridiculous. Just the whole um, smoke, the lying season, all this kind of stuff. Wow, the construction's pretty hardcore today. Um, all this kind of thing is interesting. So I'm kind of curious what the most crazy theories or strategies or any of these things are. And we got an email in that was an, an interesting one where, look, a lot of the data has been saying recently that well, not recently, just period, that teams are not great at accurately identifying the difference in talent between player X and player Y, just in any given situation. And even if you, if you limit it to the quarterbacks and just the top quarterback, like the best guy available in, every, in any given year, when you look back, it's not a particularly high strike rate, even just in terms of being able to identify who the best quarterback is in any given season. 
And if that's true, there's at least an argument to say that Jacksonville should trade down from one to two and not pick Trevor Lawrence. Essentially sacrifice Trevor Lawrence for the extra um, draft capital that you can get by trading to two, and that will be and essentially play the odds that you're you might not have the right idea anyway. Oh man, this one this one's crazy. So the email was right? good because it goes through the last few years of quarterbacks and all the first quarterbacks on yeah. the board are not necessarily the slam dunk. Does it change now there's a difference between, I think, a number one pick in a given year and a guy that you call an Andrew Luck or Trevor Lawrence type of prospect. Now, to be fair, Andrew Luck wasn't actually the best quarterback in his draft class mm -hmm. because Russell Wilson was in that draft class. Yep. So, I, but I, I still don't know if you would use that as an as as an example. I, I do think if you're talking about like this would have been perfect if we're talking Jameis Winston versus Marcus Mariota. Sure. I think if there is a legitimate split, fifty fifty split on quarterbacks, you would say I, I'm not completely sold on Jameis. I, I would take Mariota. Okay, but go back. How many of the for start? How many quarterbacks over the last fifteen years have been? the slam dunk definite best quarterback in their class as prospects, whether or not they worked out that way or not. Luck would have been one of them. It was a small group of people that said RG3, sprinter speed, all the dynamicism. There's not. Thank God, you. You've infected me. God damn it. Dynamism. Dynamism. Please. Dynamism. You, you just want to have that. So yeah. once you say dynam, you have to add an extra syllable. I don't normally. You've just broken my brain with it's whatever right, short circuit is Dynamic is the word and then dynam. It's just, Ism. yeah, yeah. It's, anyway, it's tough. Um, so there was a small group of people that didn't have luck first. Most people did, but how many of them have actually been the clear first guy? Because that's what you're talking about. It's not necessarily in any given year. A lot of them, it's not clear. This one, it is. Ah. I think Kyler, Kyler in 2019, yep. Baker uh, not Kyler because Kyler was golf wins battling not. with Daniel Jones and Dwayne Haskins. Yeah. So Kyler 2019. Jameis and Mariota not. Oh, let's go let's go backwards in order. That's what ja I am doing. Why are you in 2014 then? 15. Cuz I already went through two other ones when you weren't saying Baker? things. You did Baker in his whole class? Yeah. Okay. Baker's I mean that's chaos obviously. Yeah. 2017 was Trubisky when <laughs> that what that wasn't a consensus about Correct. Mahomes or Watson. Right. 2016 was golf wins. That was 50-50 for a lot of people. Um, 2015 was Jameis Mariota, 50-50 for a lot of people. 2014, Bortles. Who else was in that one? Bortles, Teddy Bridgewater, Derek Carr. Right. So that was probably more of a consensus. And uh, Johnny Football. Johnny Football, yeah. <clears throat> so Bortles went at three. Johnny went at 22 yeah. or whatever it was. But a lot of people were surprised by the Bortles thing at least being that high, even if he was the first one available. That was more of a, like, none of these guys are worth the number one overall pick. When is the first one going to go? deal so let's not put that in the category either 2011 was cam newton which was that was pretty consensus even if a lot of people were hating on cam newton for the fake smile and all that crap yeah he was consensus bradford was 2010 luck was gonna come out that year and he went back to school yeah luck would have changed history there 2010 was bradford who else was in that class because that was pretty 2010 was bradford Jimmy Clausen, yeah. Colt McCoy, so that was Tim pretty, Tebow was the I think the second off the board. That was pretty consensus. Twenty off. We we could rep, I could look it up. Two thousand nine was Stafford yep. and uh, Sanchez. Yep, that was pretty consensus. Two thousand eight was Matt Ryan, Joe Flacco. Mm -hmm. Pretty consensus. 
it was only because there wasn't another option. Josh Freeman was the other guy in that class. Yeah. So it, that was um, more like Bortles 2014. It's like, yeah, we don't think any anybody here is worth the number one overall pick, but we think Matt Ryan is the best of what's there. Yeah, because Ryan, Ryan was similar to Jameis, where I think he looked like an NFL quarterback, be like, hey, he just threw – ton of interceptions to be fair you have to kind of go back to 2007 which was jamarcus russell for a quarterback that was fairly concretely penciled in as the number one guy in that class who wasn't actually the best i mean luck luck and wilson you can say at least that that ended up close by the time luck actually hung him up right i think you could say that's a pretty close deal and you could say wilson is an outlier because how many third round picks yeah and, and, and and luck certainly wasn't like it wasn't like luck flamed out or it completely missed. Like it was at well, least debatable most of the way that he was still the best guy. Let me say this too. If you're really comparing the 2012 class, Russell Wilson wasn't on the first first round radar. So, you, so he's not even in this discussion, right? right? But then, but there were a lot of quarterbacks in that discussion. There was RG3, Ryan Tannehill yeah. went in the first, Brandon Whedon went in the first. But if you go, so you have to go a long way back to get to one of those. But once you do, once you hit that mark, the J- Jamarcus Russell one, suddenly there's a flurry of them. Vince Young was the first quarterback off the board in 2006. Alex Smith in 2005. Eli in 2004. All those were at least, I think, debatable in terms of who the best guy was that year. But I don't. I think you could argue that none of those guys are the best from that class. I'm trying to play with the mock draft sim just to see what the Jaguars could get from the uh, Jets here. I mean, there's no greater sum in terms of trade difference than obviously one to two. It is, in theory, the biggest haul you can get. And in particular, when you're talking about a year where Trevor Lawrence is available. So for this theory, so the whole, here's the theory again. I can go with my, my Trevor Lawrence pick. Everybody expects Trevor Lawrence. I'm the Jaguars. I'm going to pick Trevor Lawrence. That's the thing. Or I could say Zach Wilson, even if Zach Wilson is 90% of Trevor Lawrence, 80% of Trevor Lawrence, just weighing those options what if Zach Wilson plus whatever else you get? What if you get a starting tackle? What if you get a starting edge defender, a starting corner, right? You'd have to assume you're getting one other starter in there for Zach Wilson. Yeah. I'm trying to see what trade will actually be accepted here. Jaguars one for the Jets two and 34 overall. Let's see here. I mean, for it to happen, the Jets would be, you would probably want both their first round picks this year and something more. Yeah, I mean, Again, our mock draft sim is not perfect in this, but it's not even accepting two in like thirty-four or sixty-six. Yeah, I think you would pick. need. I think you would need two first-round picks this year and either next year's first or something like that. Okay, so you're talking to move from Trevor Lawrence to Zach Wilson. You would say, do you? You would want twenty-three overall let's, this yeah, year. Let's call and it, a first-round pick next year. Yes, let's make it that just for simplicity's sake, right? Essentially is the gamble that NFL teams are actually not that great at identifying the single best quarterback in any available draft class or the difference between two quite comparable draft prospects um, is the difference in that confidence worth playing the odds and picking up three first round picks to get the other guy I guess two because you're going to spend one of those first round picks on that guy so if I you're going to take Trevor Lawrence number one overall would you take Zach Wilson instead if I gave you two first-round picks to do it? Two first-round picks profit to take the other guy of your 50-50 option. I don't think I would do it. Wow. There's got to be at least an argument, though, right? There would definitely be an argument. I really think you would have to have a 
you'd have to have a forward-looking team. Yes. I think the Browns would consider it. You know why I think teams Ravens might wouldn't do it? it? I think you would take more criticism for passing on a guy who turns out good than you are than you do for taking a guy that doesn't. You know what I mean? Well, here's here's you, why. You, right? you get more criticism for essentially for giving up the opportunity than you do for just missing it in the first place. Yes, and so it here's the thing, right? If let's just use war as an example. If Trevor Lawrence, let's use some easy numbers. If Trevor Lawrence is worth three wins per year, which is a pretty good, you know, that's a top eight quarterback, top five quarterback. He's worth three wins per year. And Zach Wilson's worth two and a half wins per year, which is really good. It's a half win difference between the two. And as much as I'm all about, hey, you need to accumulate starters and, you know, build depth and the whole thing. If you have two more starters to bridge that half a game win, uh, that half win, even that, like, is a challenge. You're, you're talking about a William Jackson at corner. We talked about that before. He was worth about a quarter of a win. And, say, a, star, a, a high-end tackle. Mm-hmm. So you would have to be guaranteed Zach Wilson plus, say, uh, not even Russell Oak, like a top five. Give me a top five tackle off the top of my head. Orlando Brown last year and William Jackson. I would have to be assured of those two things, you know, hypothetically or a top 20 receiver to yeah. make that worth it. Assuming that Trevor Lawrence is worth half a win more than Zach Wilson. Now that is an assumption, but at some point you do have to defer to the generational thing or you know best prospect in a while. That does mean something. Now if we were debating in 2017 and we said, hey, Trubisky's our top quarterback, which we did. But at the time we said the difference between Trubisky and Watson and Mahomes, uh, any one of these guys could have a great career. Even in 18 when we loved Baker Mayfield, I would, I could probably be talked into this trade maybe for Sam Darnold. I, I wouldn't be actually at the time, but no. if you had made it and you gave up Baker Mayfield and you took Sam Darnold, you're probably sad. If you took Josh Allen, you were sad for two years, and who knows if year three even happens unless your situation's perfect. If you took Lamar Jackson, you're okay. The difference in well, one of the differences in the Baker year is that number two was the Giants, right? Who weren't going to take a quarterback. <laughs> Because Gettleman. Um, In this year, it's literally all you're doing is moving from one to two and taking the other quarterback who – it's because I think it's such a locked-in choice of everybody now assumes that Trevor Lawrence going number one, Zach Wilson is going number two. That is the draft order. The draft begins at number three when we don't really know what's happening. All you're doing is saying, I will give you two first-round picks. Okay, one of them is next year. But two first-round picks, clear profit to just take the other guy. And the reason that's important is because when you actually look back at the history, none of us have a great track record of just here's two quarterbacks, which one's going to be better? Yeah. Would the Jets do that? And if they did, that would mean... Would they trade the three first? Yeah, I think so. That would mean that a Greg Williams blitz decision cost them two first rounders just to get back into the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes, essentially. So you think the Jets would do that? Yes. I think if if you present... If Jacksonville were the team looking to make that deal... And they presented it to the Jets. I think the Jets would jump on that. Well, then the Jags would say, man, if the Jets are willing to do this, I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know that's how trades work, too. Possibly. Uh-oh, Belichick's on the line. Uh, whatever he wants, don't do it. Well, I mean, that's our that was our logic with, um, with the Sam Darnold thing, right? Okay, you might be confident that you can turn him around outside of the Jets, but if the new Jets regime doesn't want any part of that, that's got to make you think twice. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, so it's an interesting one. And look, it comes back down to why are picks valuable? 
why are the extra picks valuable? And, I, and, it, and I, it keeps coming back to this theory for me, and I just answered this on radio again too today. The NFL has 30 contributors in a given game, 30 to 35 contributors. Every other sport has eight in basketball and, you know, 15 in hockey and, you know, 12 in a given game for baseball. Plus there's 162 games. There's only 16 NFL games, 17 now, and 30-something guys that contribute. The quarterback is the biggest contributor there. So that is always the biggest thing. But getting a star at other positions doesn't matter that much. Getting a star at edge rusher or D on the D-line or at linebacker, it doesn't matter nearly as much as having a star in other sports. But having starting caliber players across your roster does matter. And having more draft picks allows for that. It allows you to have more starting caliber players and having fewer holes. Having fewer holes on your NFL roster might be more important than having a couple ballers at certain positions. So that's where the draft capital matters. And honestly, in the situation that I painted, if you got Zach Wilson in a starting corner and a starting tackle, say, it could over time be worth it. Mm -hmm. But um, but tr the difference between Lawrence and Wilson would have to be close. It'd have to be somewhat close. Yeah, I mean, so your, your assumption that Lawrence is worth half a win more than Zach Wilson over a given season essentially necessitating that you hit on both the extra first round picks for it to be worthwhile. I mean, if you change that assumption, you say, well, what if they're the same? Then immediately you're two starters up. And if you change it and you say, well, what if actually Zach Wilson is a better player than Trevor Lawrence? Then do it time? in a heartbeat. Which there's, a, there's people that say that, right? Chris Sims, there are people, essentially there's a lot of people whose jobs are not on the line are in love with the upside that Zach Wilson can bring and say, I would chase that ceiling. Now, they might change their mind once your job becomes tied to that decision. But the point is, there's a group of people who in a vacuum are saying, Zach Wilson might actually end up being a better NFL quarterback than Trevor Lawrence, and it wouldn't be a surprise. If that ends up being the case, then again, not only are you in profit, like you're way in front because you picked up two extra players in addition to getting the better guy anyway. Here's the historical proxy for this. The San Diego Chargers. Okay. In 2001 and in 2004. So in 2001, the Chargers had the first overall pick, I believe, and traded it to the Falcons for the guy that was supposed to be generational in Michael Vick. And Michael Vick was generational in a different way. We've never, we've still really never seen a quarterback prospect quite like Michael Vick, for good or for wor worse, whatever it is. But he, we thought he was going to change the NFL. The Chargers gave up that opportunity to to draft Michael Vick number one overall. They traded down. They end up getting Drew Brees yeah. at the top of the second round. Mm -hmm. So they gave up the generational guy. This would be like giving up Trevor Lawrence for Mac Jones and having Mac Jones end up the better player. Now, Vick, I think, came with risk because he wasn't the most polished passer. You were just dazzled by everything he could do with arm strength with, as a runner and the whole deal. So that happened. And then a couple years later, and they, the Chargers didn't really benefit from Breeze being the better player. Like that didn't really happen until he went to New Orleans. I mean, they did. They made the playoffs. And I mean, yeah, if, yeah. If the benefit's only is, winning championships, they didn't. But they made the playoffs. They well, got no. a, they got the better quarterback. The benefit is also him being the better quarterback during the time he's with that team. I don't know that that's true. necessarily true. Maybe okay. that last season. I'm not but, saying it's a win for the Chargers necessarily. I'm just saying they did it. Yes. They gave up Michael Vick. People thought they were crazy. 
and they weren't necessarily crazy. And then in 2004, Eli Manning, former Chargers legend here, hmm. was drafted by the San Diego Chargers, traded to the New York Giants. So they gave up Eli Manning, kind of forced his hand. Eli wanted to get to New York, right? <laughs> yes. But the Chargers, within a couple of years, gave up the number one quarterback in the draft twice. Yeah. And now you could argue the Giants make that deal 100 times out of 100, absolutely. But I don't think the Chargers got fleeced by getting Phillip Rivers. It, well, in it the is. Deal. It's very much the opposite of what Ernie Accorsi did in that deal, right? He essentially shipped multiple picks to the Chargers because of the confidence he had in determining Eli is a better quarterback than Phillip Rivers or even Ben Roethlisberger. Um, and when you look back at it, I don't think that you could say with any degree of certainty that that was correct, that he is a better quarterback than either of those two. Um, so that's really – that's exactly the flip side of this argument, that, look – if that's your decision, if it's like, do I send picks over there because I'm confident that this guy, I mean, it's really, it's the reason that this is an option because you're not capable of making that determination, right? Those were three guys that a lot of people all had in the sort of top 15. A lot of people had in varying different orders. They were very close together. Ernie went out there and said, I know that that guy's the best because he's got the pedigree and look what he did at Ole Miss and bloodlines and all these kinds of things. And he was wrong, I think, because Eli was not clearly better than the other two, at which point you shouldn't have given up anything to acquire him versus the other two. That really is what you're talking about here. Now, is, the, is, the, is Trevor Lawrence being a perceived generational quarterback versus Zach Wilson enough to redo history and essentially say, no, this time we can tell? Or do you learn the lesson and say, most of the time you can't tell, so if, if it's a possibility, pick up extra picks? I would say Ernie, of course, he was right. Why? How? Because they they won their championships. So I don't think Not they got with a the better, better quarterback. I think so. I don't know that he was right, but he made the right move. They made the right move. How does that work? They got the results that they wanted. Uh, this is a this not is the same. It's thing a result-oriented approach. But again, I'm saying the Giants make that trade a hundred times out of a hundred. And that's different, though. Going back, but going back to the scouting reports. Of course, he nailed what Eli Manning was, right? You know, guy, you know, cool under pressure and blah, 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 and all these things that he said. He nailed it in the sense that those things came to fruition in 2007 and 2011. Right, but they, he traded picks for a quarterback that was not demonstrably better than the alternative options during their careers. That's fine. I'm just saying the things... So how is that the right decision? Because it paid off. But that's not, that doesn't make it the right decision. That means that you ended up winning. No, this is going to take forever. Anyway. That's process versus results. It's anyway, not the Ben right Roethlisberger decision. ended up the best quarterback of that group. I mean, did he? I don't know who the hell the best quarterback of that I group was. I think Ben was. Roethlisberger did. Because okay. he had Phillip Rivers' production plus the postseason. I, forget, I don't even care about the first Super Bowl, but he was better in the postseason and you know, was the, the catalyst for a lot of good Steelers teams. And yet the Eli Manning call was right. Yeah. That doesn't even make sense. Like, even using your own absurd circular logic, that makes no viable they sense. They needed a guy that could handle New York and the whole deal. <laughs> Stop. It mattered. Stop it. It mattered. Stop it now. That... Mister, you, you whinge at me for being touchy-feely about quarterbacks, and you're like, oh, it was the right call because Eli could handle New York. I Shut can't... up. I really Shut... hate Stop Twitter sometimes. I'm trying to – I, I pose the question – I was trying to push people to listen to the podcast, of course, but I said, what if the Jags traded down one spot and accumulated more picks while drafting Zach Wilson? 
And a lot of people are angry at that. Yeah, a lot was... of people are mad about that. I'm just trying. I'm not. I wouldn't do it. I said I wouldn't do it. I'm just posing the question and painting the picture of what that would look like. No, that was pretty stupid. You shouldn't. Well, I mean, shouldn't have tweeted it. Yeah, that was that was pretty dumb. We need more people. Tell your friends. Come listen to the PFF NFL podcast. We're almost to a thousand people watching. We want to get over a thousand. We want two thousand. What do you mean? I'm digging a deeper hole, Conehead. Mm -hmm. That's the guy's name, Conehead. Yeah. Well, this right. logic is dumb. What's my logic? Yeah. Uh, maybe the Eli Manning logic. But well, listen, it all started hard. with the second best quarterback in your mind plus more picks versus the top quarterback. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. And here, here's the other thing, too. <laughs> because Ernie was right. Okay. But here's the Carry other on. part of it. We keep saying, like, if you were a good GM, you, you would go to your owner and be like, listen, I don't know everything. I'm going to miss on a ton of picks. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm, the, the, I'm going to pick the right positions. I'm going to attack things the right way. I'm going to draft high volume. Don't look at my hit rate. Look at what the team actually does. And we're going to try to hit home runs. We're trying to win a championship here. So we're going to get, we're going to pick a high volume of positions that ha could have a massive payout. And I'll build this team the right way. But it's not about just picking the right player. And there's a lot of owners. I mean, I've, I've talked to GMs who are like, I need to tell my owner, this is a guy that's going to be here for the next 10 years. This is a guy that fits our culture. This, and you just pick this linebacker or you pick a defensive lineman. That's safe. Defense, I can project a defensive lineman. He's safe. Linebacker's safe because you look at the stat sheet, he has 100 tackles, and it's like, oh, this guy must be good. Those are wasted picks if you have better players on the board. So GMs do need to do more of this. Like, Imagine that conversation. I'm going to pass on Trevor Lawrence, who I think is the best because well, I'm playing the like odds. That. No, but that but that would be the that would be the way you should preface it. No, and just you say, should. look, the Absolutely better. Absolutely, you should not you sell would say, it that way. I think I think I, I have Trevor Lawrence slightly higher than Zach Wilson. Right, this is what I, you, you would say. I have him slightly higher than Zach Wilson, but I believe Zach Wilson plus two more players is better for the team long term. And it, and that's an argument that probably doesn't happen from a GM to an owner, but that's how you would best position it. You position it by saying we have Trevor Lawrence as the slightly superior prospect, but draft history tells us that that margin is not enough for us to be able to accurately determine which guy will actually be a better quarterback going forward. Therefore, the addition of two first-round picks on top of that swings it back the other way, and we should trade down and take Wilson. That's how you would say it? Yes. That's all the same. It's very close, but as soon as you add two first-round picks to the other guy, the thing swings massively in your direction so take that yeah that, I mean, that's what i said it's better for the team wilson plus two picks all right what other th draft theories do we want to discuss here? all right so the mac jones thing to san francisco smoke everywhere what does it mean is kyle shanahan embracing this idea that you don't need mobile quarterbacks you just need the guy that processes the best and is accurate and all these kinds of things um the craziest thing i've heard is that the so you get a bunch of people saying, well, if there's, if there's smoke, there's got to be fire. And then a bunch of other people saying, Kyle Shanahan hasn't told anybody what they're doing in quarterback. So it can't be real, right? Wherever this is coming from, it isn't coming from inside of that building. It's just like crap that people are spewing. The rumor that I heard that I think is hilarious is it is coming from inside the building. And it's, an, it's not that it's real. You're feeling, you're feeling the fans out? Yeah. It? It's not that it's real that Kyle Shanahan is actually, you know, let it, leaking that he does like Mac Jones and that's where they're going. It's that the 49ers are putting it out there that Kyle Shanahan loves uh, Mac Jones because the Jets 
picking one spot above with a former 49ers assistant now running the, the joint. They're going to rethink things. They will be like, well, hang on. Kyle Shanahan's a QB guru. And if Kyle Shanahan thinks Mac Jones is the way, the truth, and the light, what if we pick Mac Jones over Kyle Wilson? And then suddenly, Wilson, who's like the prize that everybody's been shooting for this offseason, knowing that they have no shot at Trevor Lawrence, falls into Kyle Shanahan's lap at number three. I like it. Right? I'm buying into that theory. <laughs> because what other benefit would there be? You have, you, you have an assumption that Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson are the top two. You have your choice of the next three. Yep. You're not trading down anymore. You traded up to get a guy. There is literally no benefit Correct. to telling people anything about that. You just grab whatever player you want. Um, I like that. I buy, I buy into that. You would go, okay, what's the only thing, the only thing that this would, would help? And that's just the off chance, yeah. the small percentage chance that the Jets rethink themselves. Mac Jones versus Zach Wilson. Mm -hmm. Now, it falls down a little bit in that presumably um, Douglas is the guy with the actual final decision there. So you'd, sure. you'd, have to, you'd have to influence Salah to the point where he would bang the table. Salah and uh, Matt LaFleur. And right. The whole thing. Over Matt? Uh, Mike. Mike. Wrong. Mike yeah, you, you, uh, you, you got suckered into the, the incorrect sheet as well. Um, yeah, you would have to influence Salah to the point where he was banging the table uh, in front of Douglas for that guy to the point where it would convince Douglas, which feels like a stretch, but you're right. Like it, it is the only thing that it could possibly influence. Otherwise that's a, if it is coming out of San Francisco, if it isn't, then it's just, you know, bullshit. Okay. So if it's not coming from San Francisco, yeah. Why would people drum up Mac Jones interest? I mean, maybe they're not, maybe they're just bad sources. You know what I mean? Like, if it's not coming from San Francisco, it could be coming from anywhere, at which point who the hell knows why it's motivated. It could just be one dude saying, I think they're going to pick Mac Jones because look at these traits. I do think teams lower in the draft want Justin Fields. I do think maybe Denver or New England would love to have Justin Fields. There's a pretty heavy rumor that New England wants to get up to four for Fields. Hmm. And I don't think Fields is going to be there. Hmm. I think Fields is three to the Niners. Same. So, the, again, the, I don't think – this is another theory. People think Atlanta has the hottest ticket right now I at number four. I, no. I don't think so at all. I don't think they have any leverage anymore. No, I don't think anybody is going crazy to go get the, the fourth quarterback. Yeah. I so I, think so. I have I have a mock going on PFF.com on Monday. Well, there's our Monday show. Yeah. And in order to create this mock – or in order to get a head start, I need to get the graphics guy. So I need to basically come up with the mock before I write the thing. And yeah, I, I don't think that Atlanta has any leverage because I think the teams that need a quarterback don't need to go as high as number four to make it happen. So I have the fourth quarterback going at number six. Now it's not going to the team that picks number six because that's Miami. Um, but that's, I, that's where I have the fourth guy going. And then I have the fifth guy going at number 11. So I just don't think the team's that need a quarterback at that point, and it is basically Denver and New England at this stage, maybe Detroit, depending on what they think of those last two guys. I just don't think those teams need to jump as high as number four, at which point, like, the idea that, you know, immediately this report comes out and it's like, oh, Atlanta's fielding calls for number four and they'd be interested if the right offer came along. I'm like, yeah, but the only reason that's come out is because they haven't had a good offer. It's like teams are like, all right, what does number four cost? Pfft, no, see ya. 
Like they can't drum up interest in that pick because nobody wants to go that high. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I agree with that. So I don't think, yeah, I don't think Atlanta's sitting pretty as far as the trade down goes. Who knows though? So ultimately, I listen. I like the idea of if you're going to do anything, we know who we're going to. You think you know who you're going to pick, and you're the 49ers. Create the Mac Jones buzz mm-hmm. and just stay. So I thought you were going to say they created the buzz just to see like what the fan base says and if they all boo no, and stuff. God, no. Teams have allegedly done that as well. No, I don't think that's true. But I do think that there is a non-negligible chance that they are putting that out there to try and make the Jets Jets themselves. Yeah, that'd be funny. Jets are making a lot of smart moves, though, right. lately. So it's unlikely moves. to work, but I, I like the ideas of fun. All right, what else you got draft theory-wise? Uh, what else we got? So this came from an email as well that um, this isn't even a theory as much as just something to, to talk about whether a team, whether it should be viewed this way. The ter- one of the terms that gets thrown around in the draft all the time is this guy will be a 10-year starter. Plug him in, forget about that position for the next decade. Should we be thinking about the draft now in terms of one contract only? And should that be changing the way we evaluate these things, whether it's guys that you think are going to take time to develop, whether it's guys that are coming into this with an injury that you're going to have to think about redshirting a year. If you're dealing with with players in terms of one contract only, because who knows if you're going to be able to re-sign them, right? They don't want, maybe you'll have to franchise tag them and then they're gone. You might not see that second contract or they might not be good enough to justify the monster second contract. So you're going to want to move on. Either way, you might not be wise planning on them being there for years you know, five through 10 of that decade long. Um, but if you're thinking about that now in terms of one contract and done, that would change your value at least of a lot of players. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if teams don't already think that way. I, I think they, they know that inherently. I, I think that might just be media talk, 10-year starter, 10-year starter. Mm. And then again, the, when I was doing my little rant earlier, the term 10-year starter is almost always reserved for offensive linemen because, once again, we say this every single year, until PFF showed up, there was no offensive line evaluation that was public. It was all just scouts, essentially. And a lot of times, teams just deferred to, is this guy a starter? At a, at a position where there weren't stats, right? So if your left tackle was really bad one year, there were no numbers out there that like told your fans that he was bad. Like you would know, you would have an idea, you would know when you want to move on from him. But teams still deferred to, well, the guy started for four years, just keep him around. It, it didn't matter what he did on the field. Um, so the ten-year starter thing, I think, has always been reserved for offensive linemen because teams just never really moved on from guys a whole lot. They just said, I oh, know you're my starter. Let's let's keep going. Starting starts matter. So I don't think they look at it in those terms. Um, but, you know, the people are going to say, oh, the Steelers need to draft their next uh, 10-year starter at center in the first Yeah, round. but then why do um, players that people, everybody essentially agrees are project players, why are they still going very high in the draft knowing that those guys are not going to play for a year, maybe two? Yeah, so, I mean, I think Renner's done, Renner's talked about this a little bit, two-for-one drafts, by the way, um, about you don't want, to lose a quarter of a guy's contract and in a first round picks standpoint 20 percent of his contract by developing him on the other hand realistically that's just how guys develop sometimes so i think i think it's okay i, I keep coming back to diversify your funds right you want to have a mix 
of early contributors and guys who might have a second or third year payoff where the payoff is higher. I, I think it's okay to have that mix. I think it depends on where your roster is at that particular time. I mean, quarterback makes a lot of sense because the value of having one is so high that you can actually sacrifice a couple of years, even if the mo the peak value of a quarterback is during that rookie contract. It's it's still more important to be able to go from good quarterback to good quarterback without losing a, a, a decline than it is like, oh, we got to maximize the rookie deal and then spend five years trying to find a guy that's viable at all. Um, so what I'm saying there is like I can see an argument for still, you know, a Jordan Love pick where you're like, this guy's probably not going to see the field until year three. And even if that's a monster sum of his contract, it's probably still worth it if he allows you to go seamlessly from Rodgers to Love the way Rodgers allowed you to go seamlessly from Favre to Rodgers. And that was Josh Allen this year. Sure. Um, but where it gets where it gets less easy to – justify is if you're taking a guy where you're like this guy's got all the tools in the world to be an elite pass blocking left tackle but it's not going to be year one most tackles aren't year one even by those standards it's probably going to be year three before we see high-end play out of this guy now you're like well if he's a first round pick that's 40 percent of his contract already out the window if he's a, if he's second or below <laughs> like it's half of his contract like why are we picking this guy this high tackles are tricky because you look at last year's group and Tristan Wirfs was one of the most valuable tackles in the entire NFL, right? And so it's just like your quarterback theory, right? If you treated tackles the same way last year at this time, we were saying we like Andrew Thomas, number one, wrong there. But the difference between Andrew Thomas, he went first, then um, Jedrick Wills, Mekhi Becton to the Jets, Tristan Wirfs to the Bucks, and then Austin Jackson went. But... Tristan Wirfs was the fourth tackle off the board, and he was the best. Mm -hmm. And the payoff was incredible. Starter for the Super Bowl winning team and what have you. The other guys, Becton was good. Wirfs was um, – Wills was fine. And Andrew Thomas wasn't good. So you just – you don't know because the payoff could be there. But you also need tackles. They do get better in years two, three, and four. So you almost have to, like, suck it up. And, again, it comes down to the rest of the roster. Can you like? Could the Bucks have sucked it up with a bad tackle? They probably had enough around their roster that they could have. They just happened to get a great payoff from Werfs. You have there's certain positions you might just have to suck it up and say this guy might struggle a little bit because of the nature of the position. But the alternative is a street offensive tackle, which is really bad. But it also feels like position like the the injury thing. I think is is interesting because um, Jeffrey Simmons still went in the first round despite at the time the assumption that we were going to essentially have to redshirt his rookie year, right? ACL injury or whatever it was for him. It's going to miss year one, year two, three, four. That's where we're going to get this dominant first-round player. Like Again, if, if you work on, on the basis of we're only going to have this guy around for one contract, should you ever be redshirting a player like that? Again, unless he's a quarterback. Yeah. It depends on your team. So our mock the other day, right? As I was rethinking this as I got over here today. We gave the Tennessee Titans Caleb Farley, who is inherently risky because of a back injury. The payout could be incredible. The return could be best cornerback in the entire draft with his tools. However, I don't think the Titans are in a position right now to take that risk. I want to take that pick back. It's my least favorite pick now, looking back at the mock. Just for the Titans. Hmm. I would have loved it one pick later for the New York Jets, who are in a rebuild, who have a new quarterback, have a ton of draft capital, and... 
give me the Caleb, give me that Caleb Farley pick every single time. But the risk for him is that the injury is going to be a problem for him sort of in perpetuity, right? It's a risk. It's an injury risk that will hang over him like, you know, the sword of Damocles for his entire career. And you never know when that thread is going to snap. And um, it's, that's different to knowing going in that you're probably not going to have this guy year one, but after year one, everything should be good. That I think is, is the difference. Like if you think about this in terms of one contract, it's, there's a different risk essentially knowing that there's a percentage of that contract you're not going to get any value from versus at any given moment you might not get this guy because of an injury risk. Yeah, well, I'm going to go back to what the, like why I wouldn't do it with the Titans. They just wasted a first-round pick on Isaiah Wilson. Yes. Right? So they're getting – they got four snaps out of last year's first-rounder. So that would be, in my portfolio example, really, really bad in a bust. I need something safer to offset that. Sure. So I think it's all about where you are. Uh, the Jeffrey Simmons risk – I think paid off for them a couple years ago as far as the playing time goes. You get an Isaiah Wilson deal. Okay, now your roster is depleted to the point where you don't have a start. You're the Titans. Don't have a starting tackle. Questions at corner. Questions at spots that had been pretty locked down for a couple years for the Titans. They need to get that back on track because they're a borderline playoff team. They can't, they can't afford to have those holes. The Jets, even with... A Caleb Farley injury hanging over his head. Do you get th even if you get three good years out of him, out of five, or or if he just never plays well because he's always hurt? I, but the the risk is absolutely worth it for a team like the Jets in rebuilding mode. It depends on where you are. Okay, I don't know that we answered any of that, but the, sure. On to the next. <laughs> this is a great show. We're just <laughs> all right. So this one we were kicking around theories. just as a, a concept, as an idea, a while ago, and it fits into this. Um, it's not even, I think, a particularly original idea. Uh, that guy, what's his name? Chase, FGB Chase or whatever his name is, the pro football reference dude, linked me to a post about this from like a decade ago on pro football reference that began using this extremely tortured metaphor about standing up versus sitting down in the ball game or whatever. But anyway, the point is, because the strike rate of every every talent evaluator in the world, including PFF, including every GM, including Bill Belichick, whoever it is, right? Everybody's strike rate is crappy, which is why the draft is still termed a crapshoot because nobody has any idea. And everybody is batting you know, like 30% or whatever. Um, would you be better off essentially allocating your resources in a scouting department by saying, we're just going to take the consensus big board, right? There's places out there that aggregate all this stuff and put it all together and instead of pff's big board or dane brugler's big board or chris sims big board or whoever it is you just get one list the consensus board this is how everybody ranks the available talent generally this year using that as your scouting department and pivoting the guys that you have who right now are doing talent evaluation to basically just a vetting agency your job as the scouting department now is to just take names off that list. Talk to, to prospects, tell me which guy is like prohibitively dumb that I have to take off the list because they're way too stupid to ever be a successful NFL player. Tell me who's got legal problems. Tell me who's about to get a million dollars and go partying in Nashville constantly during a, a pandemic. Get him off my list. Your job is simply to remove names from my list of available talent on the consensus big board. And then I'm just using that. Would you be better or worse? 
I think that'd be a pretty solid way to do it. Right? We'll get into it in a second because I got to tell you guys about if you like fantasy football and you like playing fantasy for money, you need to check out Underdog Fantasy. Underdog's got everything, including season long and playoff best ball. Best ball is a season long game where you draft a team like you normally do, but that's it. There's no in season roster management. Underdog automatically selects your best performers each week, saving you loads of time. So go to Underdog Fantasy and get this. Deposit just 10 bucks using the promo code PFF and get a free PFF Edge annual subscription. Promo code PFF. Draft now at Underdog Fantasy. It's a no-brainer because a part of PFF Edge is the draft guide, which is, what, 1,200 pages or so right now? Just go check it out. A million pages. It's a million. So I love this as a question. Consensus draft board and your scouts are psychologists only. Well, not just psychologists, but like background agents, right? They go and check legal issues. They go and check attitude problems. They go and check, as I say, intelligence, because that is a relevant this factor. For you, Greg. They, they literally, you're a vetting agency. Your job is to go out there and tell me what the red flag on this guy is that I don't see or that, that isn't there on tape, right? Because that's what everybody else is doing. You work on the basis that nobody is dramatically better or worse at actual tape talent evaluation. Just take the consensus and then your, your edge is we're going to have the best vetting agency possible, and I'm not going to have the idiot bus that, we, that, that happen. You know, a lot of, a lot of the misses from uh, just tape scouts, right, whether it's PFF, whether it's, you know, insert random dude that does this as a hobby, a lot of the misses from those people are stuff that you had no shot of seeing coming, right? It's a dude with, like, a weed problem, that gets suspended five times and can't kick the habit. It's like, well, you didn't know that, right? You're just watching the dude's tape. And it's like, well, that that doesn't show up mid-game against Virginia Tech, right? So if if your scouting department was better than everybody else weeding those guys out, the actual margin in terms of talent evaluation is probably negligible if it's there at all. First off, we have some people picking on me for how often I adjust my mic. Okay. Which is often. Very self-conscious about it. Hmm. I'm going to try to get better. I think teams already put a lot of resource into that. So I don't know if there's an edge in putting more resource into it. Hmm. We already have. There's already, why, there has to be. Because otherwise, how can you screw up? Some of, the, some of the busts are so bad that you're like, you can't have that much resource in this. And where are you saving? So are you telling me you're going to save the re- You're just not going to pay as many uh, scouts? I, everybody that's currently getting paid to watch tape and tell me how good a guy is is resource is money I can plow into private detectives or whatever the hell I'm going to so use. They already do that. They already use private detectives. We'll get more. Get all of the money follow, that is currently like you you're, have. You're going to follow like 300 people and get every last detail about them. Yes. See, I would. I think over time, <clears throat> I think there are extremes, and I think your point is good. Like, give me the you want. You would want the extremes. And only the guys that need to be removed from the draft board. But I, Im- I imagine you would miss on some of those too, just like you would miss. That's fine. That's an acceptable loss. It's leakage, I think, is the technical term. You you accept a degree. But the same of thing happens in scouting, right? You know, everybody. Like, we should be able to tell what good football players are. And you say, okay, this guy's the fiftieth best player in the class. This guy's the twentieth best player in the class. But we're all over the place with that. We all are, right? And that's that's the whole point of this. Would psychological testing or off-field testing or or grading or however you want to look at it would that have a higher hit rate i there some of the misses that happen right now in those areas i think are so egregious that teams can't have enough resource in that area now i understand entirely if you're like look there's only x amount of money that we're going to spend on 
on um, draft evaluation as an umbrella term. And most of that is going into the talent evaluation side of things. There's only so much left over for Jim, the private detective, and for the dude that's, whose job it is to chase up background information. That's fine. That's a perfectly acceptable uh, argument to say this is how the resources are divided. So what if I told you, you can take all of the money that's being spent over here on who's watching tape and put it over here instead. I think that would move the needle a lot. I cannot see a world in which you could not have prevented an Isaiah Wilson draft pick from a character point of view alone, given how quickly he rode that thing off the rails and into the sea. Do you think it was a lack of resource? That, I, I don't know if it's it? resource or like, in, but I'm, my point is, I cannot see a world where that could not have been predicted before the draft if enough time, energy, resource, however you want to praise it, was put into that guy. I think there's something there. And I think here's, here's what the NFL would argue, right? And, and, and it's hilarious. I've, I've, I've heard a lot of people say this before too. With scouts, it is a fascinating combination of the scout's job is to evaluate football players, but also dig into their history a little bit, right? Talk to the coaches, talk to their teachers and professors, and just, just get into the, those are two different, those are two different jobs. And that's essentially yeah. what you're saying, right? So instead of finding someone and even evaluating positions as a, as a football scout, I mean, I used to study throwing quite a bit. I know a lot about the throwing motion. I can't imagine that the hundreds of scouts around the NFL actually know anything about throwing. A few of them probably do, but they're going to, they have to evaluate a quarterback and a thrower just as much as they have to evaluate the footwork of an offensive lineman and the footwork of a DB. Maybe those things should just be more specialist driven and find people who are just good at evaluating specific positions. Um, so then the scout also, that same guy has to be like the, the character guy too and, and study a guy's character so maybe it's just compartmentalizing this I mean, whole thing i do think that you can make a case that there is a massive edge to be had in the nfl period if so if you're an owner with unlimited resources or one of the richest owners out there i think you could expand your scouting department to the point where you just crush it in a way other people can't contend with like i i, I think you if you're jerry jones right jerry jones got to be like the richest owner in the nfl right or at least one of them no there's somebody Bezos well, soon yeah yeah and one of the Microsoft people doesn't he still own the Seahawks or whatever anyway whatever if you're one of the richest owners out there you could come in there and say you have a blank check to hire as many human beings as you need to to run this scouting department to the point where it's exhaustive so every single player I want to have had as you said a technique specialist run over his tape a coach um, a character guy you know in depth up the yin yang everything there's no stone on term for every single of these hundreds of players available in the draft. There are teams out there that just cannot and will not compete with that. So I think you could definitely argue that there's just an edge to be had by throwing resource at this one area that is not limited by like a salary cap or whatever. You can spend as much as you want. People just don't because presumably they think that at some point there's a law of diminishing returns. Um, but I think you could definitely generate an edge there. What I'm interested in is if you're a team that's just middle of the road, has the same resources as everybody else, if you just completely switched the allocation of that resource and said, you know what, there is almost no edge to be had between paying all of you guys to make your own evaluations versus me just taking the wisdom of the crowd and running it that way. Would you, but, do, it? Would you do it? Do you think it's valuable? What's your take on it? Which way? Just 
go with the wisdom of the crowds from a player eval standpoint and just go if I'm a team off field testing. If I'm a team that has had a limited degree of success in that area, and particularly if I'm a team that is already starting things over, you know, institutionally is is doing is doing an overhaul or a revolution. So I'm thinking Detroit or Carolina back when David Tepper took over. Um, I would definitely listen. If somebody came to me, you know, a, a young GM who had a plan, a vision, right? And I've just walked in as the owner and I want to do things different. I want to make some noise. I want to steal a march on everybody else. And this dude came to me and said, here's my plan. I know there's no difference between the wisdom of the crowds and me as a as a talent evaluator, as, as my group of people. It's not that they're not good at their job. It's just that the strike rate is so low for everybody. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pivot all the resources into this. I don't want any more money from you. I'm just going to allocate it in a completely different way to anybody else in the NFL. I would sign off on that. I would say, yeah, let's see. Let's see how it works. Fascinating. I, I would want more information. So I think the scouting information is valuable. I, I just think it's a fascinating community of NFL scouts when you hear them talk about their history of scouting and the importance of their trigger finger on their stopwatch and all that stuff to know that the hit rate is so low, just the same yeah. across the league. They're really, I don't know if there's a such thing as a good scouting department. I think the, it is, but they all a, think they are, they all think the problem. And, and, and because when you talk, this happens at the combine every year, you talk at the combine, it's like, Oh yeah, you know, this guy, he was great, but he flamed out because, you know, his girlfriend did something or whatever. Mm -hmm. it was that, th there's like excuses for why guys didn't work. So everybody has their misses in their head. And it's like, oh, I, I had two misses through the years. They, ever, they all think that they yeah. nailed it, right? Um, I mean, and then I, the other thing is, I wonder how many, um, I wonder how many of these moves, mistakes happen because the right information wasn't listened to. So how many times did the team actually have the capacity within the building to take the name off the board or to eliminate a guy or to see a problem coming, but that area scout or that regional scout was ignored when it got to the process. So I'm not saying this happened with Isaiah Wilson. I have no idea why they missed on it. But say there was an area scout that saw all of this coming. It was like, that dude is a nightmare. You hand him a check that's got six, seven figures attached to it, five months later, he's gonna be out of the, out of the league. He's gonna be suspended. He's gonna be a nightmare. Don't touch him. If that guy, maybe that guy got ignored. And they're like, well, yeah, on the other hand, look at the size of him. And, you know, look at this run block here. Like, maybe we can work with that. Maybe that guy, maybe the information never got through. And there's a bunch of situations where teams are screwing up. Like, maybe the edge is to have some kind of system where you're like, all right, the people that have actually done the most work on these people have veto or have power to take a name off a board. So, that you know, um, John Lynch is not the guy that controls the names that come off the board. The actual area region scouts are. Oh, man. I mean, I'm trying. There's, there's a lot to wrap our heads around here because I think – so the Patriots are a team that allegedly go into the draft with like 75 names. Yeah. Right? Every other draft board you see online is like, three, here's my top 300, here's my top 250 or whatever it is. The Patriots are big eliminators. And, and they eliminate not just because of – psychological testing or whatever it is it's just patriot way and system and fit and and all these different things but i think you would look at the patriots through the years and say they have a couple huge hits in like gronk and devin mccourty both from the same draft and 
you know, Chandler Jones and Dante Hightower. They have some good players through the years. But they've known to draft in volume. And recently they've drafted horribly because those are the natural ebbs and flows. I think New England has missed on a lot of stars and probably eliminated a lot of future stars off their board just by having such a, a really tight process of eliminating people. And that's why I'm, I'm always afraid to eliminate rather than going back to what we said a couple shows ago, what if there was just the risk number, right? And it's, and it's not just, hey, using scouting scout, this guy's a six. We think he could be an eight, right? We think he could be an eight. He could be a superstar. But on top of that is the risk factor, whether it's off field, whether it's injury, whether, whatever it is. And if the risk is a 10, that's high and one is a low. And then you start to pick and say, and then you roll that all into the formula and say, now I'm willing to take an Isaiah Wilson-esque risk because, say, the payoff is the, – the payout is just incredible. Uh, to me, it's just having more information. And maybe I'm just talking myself in circles back to, like, the same thing NFL teams are doing, which is taking all the information, feel like you're deciphering it, feel like you're making good decisions, and at the end of the day, nobody is. I guess the bottom line for this to me is that every team in the NFL is broadly speaking doing this in more or less the same way and none of them are excelling none of them are any dramatically better or worse really than anybody else at which point somebody it feels like should come up with a counter culture way of doing it somebody needs to come up with saying look we're buried in mid-table obscurity mediocrity either we find ourselves this transcendent genius head coach and gm or a transcendent genius generational talent or we can try and screw around with the stuff on the back end that nobody else is doing and try and steal a march there and it might not work like maybe you do this and it turns out this is a train wreck of an idea it's not gonna it makes you worse it was just a total mess and then you reset and you start doing it the same way as everybody else but given it's just the nfl seems very happy for everybody to be doing the same thing for such bad return, right? Like if, if in any other walk of life or in any other business, if you were like, we, our strike rate is about 30% across the board, and we're, we're comfortable there. That's a good hitter, yeah. by the way. Whatever. But in any other walk of life, you're like, this is our rate for this. You'd be like, well, that feels like we could do better. <laughs> what if we got to 45%? You're still batting, you know, you're still under 50. What, what if we just move from 30 to 45 on a consistent basis? Like, if you did that, you're the best team in the NFL by a mile. Your talent acquisition versus everybody else puts you in, like, a different stratosphere. And yet everyone's like, well, all right, let's just keep going. So I, I think here's, here's part of the issue, right? Um, our guy Timo did a really good article uh, a couple weeks ago on the best drafters recently. And so, like, Chris Ballard was at the top, I believe. Uh, Rams were high. A couple teams were high. Chris Ballard's only been in Indy for a while, you know? Mm -hmm. So if, if that was us, right? If PFF took over the Colts at the same time Chris Ballard did and we had the same hit rate, would you be saying, how would you handle this? This is how I used to look at Ryan Fitzpatrick as a quarterback. Would you say, Fitz is playing well. This can't last, right? This isn't going to last. But the history's against me, right? So would the Colts actually say that? If you're Chris Ballard and be like, man, I just had three good drafts. I'm due... I'm due to, you know, fall. I'm due to have a couple bad years now. Would you actually do that and have the, or would you just say, man, I'm onto something? No, I think he, I mean, I think just human nature, if <laughs> he would think he's great, he thinks I'm, I'm just better at this than you are. 
So I'm going to keep going. Yeah, and Chris, they're not the team that you would expect to do this. And by the way, Chris Ballard is a guy he hired. Um, I think it was was the former Navy SEAL that I think went through Seattle a couple of years ago. But he they do a lot with yeah. off field stuff. And Look, so I, he probably looks at it and says, "I got here. Uh, I'm, I've taken control. I've implemented my process, and my process I've is working. From other I will people. continue yeah. it." I would not expect the Colts to be the team that looked to be this radical. I would expect the team that is coming off a low ebb in terms of bad consecutive drafts for a while, saying, look, what we're doing isn't working anyway. And by the way, if you look at the rest of the league, it's not really working for anybody. So let's try something radical. Let's try something crazy and see if that works. Um, so the point Timo would make too was that like Chris Ballard with the Colts has had success, but when he was in the mix with the Chiefs, they had a couple bad years. And Jason Light recently from the Tampa Bay Bucks has been great, but his previous years – we're not great. So there are, there are these ebbs and flows. The other examples would be, you know, the Saints looked like they had one of the greatest draft classes of all time in 2017 with Marshawn Lattimore and Elvin Kamara and all these guys, Ryan Ramchek, all these guys that they, that they added. And then the next year, they gave up multiple picks to go get Marcus Davenport. And it was like, all right, that wasn't the right move. Like if, if you knew that you could draft that well, yeah, why would you ever trade up for one player? You'd always draft multiple players and continue to build – a dynasty or a dynasty. Um, and I think, honestly, the Seattle Seahawks, early in their tenure there, 2010, 11, and 12, they had uh, – 11 and 12 particularly, they had great draft classes, including Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner still there. The Richard Sherman picks, the Earl Thomas picks, those carried them for a while, but they went through ebbs and flows. So I don't know if teams would ever have – I know you're saying it's an extreme team, but I wonder if certain teams should have some level of self-awareness too and say <laughs> – but I don't know. You just play the odds. Say, hey, we've had a good run. We should. We're gonna. We're gonna get worse right now. That's how. That's. That's really what I thought. Ryan Fitzpatrick, his career used to look like. I mean, that's He's going what, good. Just expect him to get worse for a little bit. That's what teams should do. But I think it's an unreasonable human expectation to, um, to demand somebody have that level of self awareness. I just don't think it's likely or possible or even reasonable for you to be like, you know, because. We act like every team is just in this constant, a state of constant being, but it's a new, it's a new franchise. It's a new organization. Every time a guy comes in, you know, a new GM, a new whatever. So for Ballard, it's not, well, this is, this is a, this is decades of, of information. It's like, I came in with my unique experience and my unique uh, learning and teaching and understanding, and I've instituted these changes and wow, look, it's all working. Why would I, why would I think that this is going to unravel under my feet because I'm doing it slightly differently than everybody else. Now, it's not as radical as I'm suggesting, but to him, it's like, I've, I'm doing this different. We're, we're, we've got these guys. Other people don't have him. We're chasing these specific unique traits and it's working for us. So I don't think it's reasonable to expect a guy like Ballard to come in and say, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like this is just waiting to collapse under me. Let's, let's make some changes. I think him, you have to say, I mean, wait until the downswing. And then you, then a team is ripe to make some radical changes. I would love to hear what some other NFL teams think. We've talked to some GMs and front office execs recently who do, they're fans of the podcast, Sam. They listen to the podcast. Yeah. Maybe not as much right now with draft meetings going crazy, but Pfft, it is. You can't find time for this. I can't help you. I'm always fascinated that, and I'm in a lot of team meetings lately because of uh, PFFIQ, our new, our new subscription that we're selling to NFL teams, which is putting our best stuff out there, putting our best evaluation tools out there and just trying to take their PFF experience to the next level because all 32 teams do work with us here and we've got new tools for them 
to you. So I'm in a lot of these meetings right now, and it's always fascinating to me that there are 32 completely different ways of operating. It's 32 completely different organizations. So when people tell you the NFL's this or the NFL's that, I mean, it's it's 32 different businesses, really. Yeah. And organizations and structures and, and this is why use I, cases. I am kind of surprised that nobody has been this radical before in these areas because the NFL generally traps teams in a fairly rigid way of operating in a lot of ways, right? The salary cap, the division of um, revenues and all these kinds of things. There aren't that many ways that you can be completely radical. CBA in terms of practice time and all these kinds of things. Like a lot of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis is very rigidly predetermined and you don't have a lot of wiggle room. There's like almost an unlimited way, uh, amount of scope for screwing around with your scouting department in terms of how much you're spending, in terms of where the money goes. And yet most of them look broadly the same. Like there's a difference in terms of how many people and all that kind of thing, but they kind of operate fairly much like for like. We have some questions in the chat about the PFF draft show on April 29th. We're going to be on PFF.com. We might be in a few other places, so just stay tuned. But uh, Chris Collinsworth's going to be here. All of our draft analysts, Sam and I will be there. Mike Renner, Austin Gale, uh, even those guys on the forecast, George and Eric are going to be on there as well. And uh, I'm hearing guest appearances from at least Richard Sherman, Al Michaels, maybe more. So... Check it out. We're going to be here at pff.com. I don't know if we're exactly on the YouTube channel, but we're somewhere. Just stick with us over the next couple of weeks. We're going to have more details. The draft shows where you're going to want to be. And it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We're going Thursday through Sunday, keeping up with all the action and then recapping things on Sunday. That's the early plan right now. And don't forget the PFF draft guide. Mention the Underdog Fantasy deal. If you go to Underdog Fantasy and use the promo code PFF, all you need to do is deposit 10 bucks. I know a lot of Draft guides are just $10 around here, and PFF Edge is more. But you can get Edge and the draft guide for just 10 bucks at Underdog Fantasy. Use the promo code PFF. Over 300 player profiles in that draft guide. Um, you want to go on a rant about stopwatches. So Yeah. So just, just think about this from a high level uh -huh. for a second. Okay. At, at the highest level, we say teams hit 50% of the time, right? And if, you're, if you have a good stretch, you're at 60%. If you have a bad stretch, you're at 40%. The margin of error is you know, you're just going to miss, right? And scouts have a ton of value, right? They do, a lot of, they do a lot of good things. But it is just fascinating. You've got old scouts and angry scouts and you know, former whatever all over the uh, social media landscape telling you about how important it is to get their 40 time, to get their stopwatch in person watching a player run can you can we just discuss how insignificant that is in mm -hmm. this entire process okay because the 40 time we already know is almost you know has almost no impact on a player right the difference if, if he's four three eight versus four 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 negligible impact now if he's four three eight versus five <laughs> then there's a big issue but my five-year-old can probably tell you if I got do use a stopwatch and get the difference between a four-four and a four-eight. Probably okay. But scouts are convinced that their trigger finger, only in person, professionally trained, watching guys, is going to get you the precision hmm. hundredths decimal point on a forty. Even though human error is like two tenths of a second. Yeah. In general, that's the that's the big thing. It's like. No, we're only trusting the stopwatch from our guy. 
I mean, I think Jim Nagy tweeted that. It was something like, if, if, if the time didn't come from our scout on the day in the building, it, it doesn't exist. We don't trust any other number. Like, but like literally the, the margin for error on a stopwatch over any period of time is like 0.2. So the difference between a 4.3 flat and a 4.5 flat is the margin of error you have in using the stopwatch. And to it, like people know that, right? Because you hear all the time about, you know, the guy runs and what they do is every scout there like compare stopwatches, right? And you end up with something in the middle. You end up with like a consensus. You throw out the dude that got 4.25 because evidently he screwed it up when everybody else has a 4.35. So they already inherently know this as true fact that you can't, like you don't have that degree of accuracy, you precision. What you do is what we've just talked about. You get the wisdom of the crowds, you crowdsource it, and you end up with a more accurate number. Right. I, I haven't been to a pro day this year. Somehow I think I'm working with accurate pro day 40 times. Now, as accurate as anybody else, anyway. As accurate as anybody else. I didn't have to send the PFF team scout to the pro day to get the pro day number, right? And then if I did, is he going to come back and be like, hey, hold up. I know you got 4-4 on this guy. I just want to know, on my watch, had him at 4-3-7. Hmm. Oh, well, there, there goes our algorithm. There goes, there, goes our, uh, there goes our ranking. Yeah. Our draft board completely turned upside down. It has no significance on the actual player, I mean, whether or not he's going to hit. I do just which think is the ultimate thing. Like you, either you just want players to hit. Yeah, I, I do just think it's funny that they get that caught up in the idea of our personal stopwatch needs to be the thing, even though the differences we're talking about are literally within the margin of error of operating the I, thing. I know the error is not point two. That's fine. I get it. It's, it kind of is though. It's like tighter. It's, it's tighter than that, but it doesn't. But it honestly doesn't even matter because if you were off between four four and four four seven or whatever, it, it's still insignificant enough that it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean the margin for error is kind of fifteen hundred to two hundredths of a second or two tenths of a second, rather. It's it's that kind of range. Now you can shrink that by the fact that you're not actually reacting to stimulus as much as tracking and sort of matching which is a different thing but you are reacting to the start which is the key right because everybody even in laser times right this is why the combine is a, this is why the the combine is interesting because you're like well it's it's locked in it's laser timed you're like well only the end is laser timed there's no laser they break to start the 40 so somebody is watching that waiting for that dude to make his first movement and starting the clock that gets stopped when he breaks a laser at the end but the start is 100% reaction time for the dude watching, which is an error of one to two tenths of a second. Yeah, it just doesn't make a huge, a huge difference. There, scouts, scouts have value, but their evaluations of the actual play. I mean, it's, again, it's, I, I think it's just like seeing a guy in person. I mean, if, if hit rate is so low in general, how is going to see a guy, which I would do. I mean, if I was the GM and I, you know, I'd take the trip and go see him or whatever. But if that is impacting your evaluation that much, I think you're, I think you're missing the boat, the in-person stuff. And every scout has, has a story or every evaluator has a story. Oh, I saw this guy in person and this is what I saw. And that's when I knew he was the guy, but that only holds weight. If you weigh that against every other time you saw a guy in person and thought he was the guy. And if your hit rate is still 50%, then does it even matter? And that's the whole point here is trying to, you know, hit a higher percentage of plays, players. 
Or if you don't hit a higher percentage of players, make sure that the ones that you do hit have a bigger payout. And that's why I've evolved a little bit from draft good players to draft <laughs> valuable You need a new players. t-shirt. I know, we do. We do need a new shirt. Hey, it's a fun discussion. The people in YouTube are, they're fired up. It's, mm. a good, it's a good discussion. It's draft season. We're talking draft theories. Do you have anything else on the list? Just the email that came in. Uh, All right, let's so It's an interesting question. Email. It's phrased, you know, somewhat confrontationally. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this person's email address is uh, a crimson.au.edu email address. Uh, because he says, Dear NFL Pod, uh, I've noticed an inconsistency in interpretation of the PFF grading system. Mac Jones is seen by PFF at large as nothing more than a product of his environment and therefore his 94 grade is not taken seriously. Meanwhile, you say that Sam Darnold is a backup caliber quarterback due to his 60 grade despite the abysmal situation around him. So which is it? Uh, does the PFF grading system isolate a player for his environment or not? That's from Matthew Story who may or may not be a rabid Alabama fan with an axe to grind over our interpretation Bama of Mac Jones. Bama fans are fun. Bama fans are fun. Uh, yes, the PFF grade does isolate a player very well. Um, it's certainly not perfect. You, right. can, you can have your great – so if you looked at Mac Jones' stats in isolation, then you would – then supporting cast – let's say supporting cast is 40% of that. Let's say it's, it's just for stats. 60% Mac Jones, 40% supporting cast. I would say the PFF grade is more like 80-20. Just, just pulling numbers out, but, it, but it, I think this is close to reality, right? Because we know that if, we, if Mac Jones makes a great throw and it's dropped, I know that that's better than the, the stat breakdown. I know that if he throws a screen that goes for 70 yards, I know that's our process. I know that that's better than just looking at stats. So it is. But one of the most unstable numbers, in not even unstable, but one of the numbers that tends to fluctuate a little bit is positively graded throws in our system. And that's why PFF IQ is important in parsing out. It's not just the overall grade, it's how the grade's constructed. So if you're at Alabama and you're Tua or you're a Mac Jones or you're at Oklahoma with Kyler, Baker, and Jalen Hurts, they have a massive number of positively graded throws. And that stuff gets back, that's just football intelligence, right? If you give them a lot of receivers, you give them a great supporting cast, they have more, you're, you're going to produce better. So it does affect your grade a little bit. So that's why when you're projecting players, you try to weigh the positives less and you weigh the negatives a little bit more because those are going to stay more consistent. Positives are supporting cast dependent. So there's some dependency, just to finish it up, some dependency where Mac Jones has open receivers left and right and he's going to have a higher overall grade and a guy like Sam Darnold will have a lower grade but we're talking about Darnold at 60, and I'll let you explain that a little bit more. But the answer is there's a little bit of dependency, but far less than I think every other measure. Yeah, it's football. There's 11 players on each side of the ball. There's so many interconnected pieces. It's impossible to isolate any one thing from any other thing. And this has always been why football does not work the way baseball works, where you had this sabermetrics analytics revolution, and then we're done, right? Finished. We did it. We have fixed the game. It's now driven by numbers, and now everybody knows how to work. It, football is never going to get there because it's impossible to isolate each segment the way you can with baseball. Everything is slightly dependent on everything else. What PFF grade is able to do is to drag that, in, drag that towards one specific area. So we can't 100% isolate the quarterback from everything around him, 
but we can isolate it a lot better than just looking at numbers and having no real idea how much of that was driven by supporting cast or offense or all those kinds of things. So the point you make is good that we can tell you if it was an accurate throw that was caught or dropped or whatever by the receiver, but what we can't do with just the PFF grade number, um, we can attack it with a few other data points, but we, we can't sort of quantify using that grade I mean, how many times were those guys wide the hell open, which prompted the quarterback to throw the pass in the first place to give himself an opportunity of making those positively graded throws that you talk about? And that's why those are a lot more dependent on supporting cast, because if you have a group of five guys that are getting five yards of separation every time, you're going to put the ball in the air a lot more into beneficial situations and get yourself positive grades versus looking up every time and there's five guys blanket covered, and at some point you just have to like take a shot at one of them that isn't open, that isn't going to get you a positive grade, and you just you don't end up with as good a grade. So it's we're never going to be able to isolate 100% how much is the – or isolate the quarterback 100%, but we can tell you with a, a much better degree of certainty using the grade than you can with just raw bog standard numbers. And that extra remaining percentage of how much of this is supporting cast-driven – is the gray area it's where the art comes in this or where the the evaluation and the analysis comes between the likes of a sam darnold and a mac jones right so one guy has been helped by a supporting cast one guy has been hurt by a supporting cast we also know that one guy has played very well and the other guy has played like ass so the question is what is the remaining percentage and how much of that difference in the grade can be accounted for that and that is there's no answer to that there's no firm hard uh, number that accounts for that that's where we have to make determinations and evaluate based off watching the tape and when you watch the tape you're like i i mean i so i think it probably is a fair characterization of the mac jones narratives to say that generally he's been written off by pff as a product of the environment i also agree that that isn't 100 percent accurate and when you look at his tape you can construct an argument both ways that you're like hey look he's done some really impressive things within that environment but it also clearly helps him um we've also never we we mentioned this a few podcasts ago i don't know if we've ever seen an environment as favorable as alabama's yeah with their receivers so i agree with him that we've probably been as a as a collective too dismissive of mac jones but i also think it's very real that that in that environment has influenced him positively we just don't know how much um and then the flip side with darnold Again, it's it's very obvious that that environment has hurt him. What isn't as obvious is how much. Um, but I think because the the negative things in his game are the more stable ones, they're the ones that he can control um, independent of shitty supporting cast, you can make a reasonable determination that, you know what, Darnold is at least as big a problem as everything else around him has been. So, yeah, he might get better in Carolina – and even if he doesn't get better, he might look better because of the environmental factors. But the reason his grade is 60 is not because everybody around him sucks. It's because he also sucks. And so here's the other thing, right? We, I can't remember if we did this on air or off air. We debated you're, you're lower on Darnold than even me coming out of the Jets, right? And yeah. I, I think that there's a chance he's going to get better. And, and my reason, and I compared him to Mitchell Trubisky. Do you, do you have more or less faith in darnold versus trubisky and i believe you told me no there will not there's no difference right they're just as bad as the other one 
my argument for Darnold potentially turning it around, at least a little bit, not becoming an MVP or anything, but turning it around, we've seen Mitchell Trubisky in good situations. 2018, with Matt Nagy, he had a top-five play caller. He's had Allen Robinson. His offensive line has gotten worse through the years, but again, in 18, they were that classic league-average offensive line. So we've seen with Trubisky... With the, he, we've seen Trubisky with the elements of at least a reasonable offensive line, a good enough play caller, and a good, a good group of pass catchers. And we've seen him put up good stats despite bad grades. Mm-hmm. Darnold has had similar grades. His stats have never been elevated because he's never had an offensive line that wasn't like bottom five from a pass blocking standpoint. He's never had a good group of receivers. Robbie Anderson's probably the best receiver, him and Jamison Crowder, and rarely did he have them together. So we've never seen Donald in a good situation. We have seen Trubisky in a good situation, which is why two guys that are graded similarly over the last couple of years, there's at least a little bit of hope, I think, that Donald could come out of it, you know, in a in a better situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I would anticipate a similar, I would anticipate high-end hype Trubisky for Donald this year, right? The, the periods where Trubisky's numbers have looked good and Bears fans have been convincing every, or trying to convince everybody, that he actually is the future. That's what I imagine Darnold will look like this year, where actually the grades say, guys, pump the brakes. This isn't really working, even if his numbers are good. And they're like, no, but look, it's, he's turned a corner. It's going great. That's what I think this year will look like for Darnold. Yeah, right. So that, that was that was Teddy Bridgewater in Carolina last year for a while. Uh, was not grading well, but the stats were pretty good. And, and honestly, I think that is the biggest benefit of the PFF grades to to – to sum that up when the grade and the stats don't match there's I I think we've got it right right I I think we can tell when things are off when both are great or both are bad it's a little harder to parse those out and that is Mac Jones and that is Sam Donald Mm -hmm. because there's some level of dependency so good answer very good answer good show a lot of NFL draft discussion and theories and the whole deal Hit us up if you have any other crazy draft theories you want us to discuss. But I think that's what it's all about here. We're in the team-building mode. It's great to hear about all the front office folks that are listening to us as well. Enjoy your draft meetings here during draft season. Just speaking to the people. So the people. All 32 of them. All 32. There's more than 32. It's front office folks. It's not just, oh, okay. not just, it's GMs. Not just GMs. So we'll be back here tomorrow. More, you know, going three times a week. Another PFF NFL podcast tomorrow. And uh, what are we doing tomorrow? Do we know yet? No. All right. You never know. But tune in. We'll be live on YouTube once again. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. See you tomorrow.